Welcome to Optimal Neurospine Podcast, a podcast about optimizing our brain and spine in health and disease. Each episode, leading neuroscientists, neurosurgeons, educators, patients, spine care, and quality improvement experts discuss their research, experience, emerging science, surgical advances, and insights about how to optimize neurological and spine care. Now, here's your host, Dr. Max Boyacci. Welcome to the Optimal Neurospine Podcast. Today, we have a distinguished guest, Dr. Christopher Ames. He is Professor of Clinical Neurological Surgery and Orthopedic Surgery at the University of California in San Francisco. He's the Director of Spinal Deformity and Spine Tumor Surgery. He's Co-Director of Spinal Surgery and Co-Director of the UCSF Spine Center. He's also director of the California Deformity Institute and director of the Spinal Biomechanics Laboratory. Dr. Ames has been named to the top doctors list in San Francisco Magazine from 2015 through 2021. He's been listed in America's top doctors from 2010 to present. Dr. Ames completed his medical degree from the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, he completed a residency in neurosurgery at the University of California in San Diego, and he also completed a fellowship in complex spine surgery at the Barrow Neurological Institute. Internationally renowned for his expertise in spinal deformity surgery, he has published over 400 peer-reviewed publications. Dr. Christopher Ames, Professor Ames, welcome. Well, thanks, Max. Uh, thanks for that very thorough introduction. And I appreciate the opportunity to be with you today to talk about some of our research work. Excellent. Excellent. What is your current practice? What is your, describe your current clinical practice? Currently, my practice is mostly adult spinal deformity. I would say probably over 80%. It didn't always it didn't start that way, certainly. I, I used to do everything when I first started out, my first five years in practice. But over time, and, and as most of us do, absorbing some of the, the environment in, in which I was practicing at UCSF, we have a great history of spinal deformity surgery through David Bradford, who used to be the chair of orthopedic surgery here, who was my assistant professor mentor, actually, for, for several years. And over time, I developed an interest in the adult spinal deformity patient. We can talk a little bit about maybe why that was. And then the other 20% of my practice is around primary bone tumor, some complex cervical, craniovertebral junction work, et cetera, but really uh, mostly adult spinal deformity and primary bone tumors. Excellent. So how did you become interested in the treatment of spinal deformities? I would say it was both sort of an active interest and then sort of an aversion in, in, in some ways. And I'll, I'll describe what I mean by that. When I used to do everything, I noticed that some of my happiest patients were my one and two level degen patients, and some of my unhappiest patients were those exact same patients. And I had great difficulty telling them telling them apart on the preoperative side. And I have to say, for my tumor population, and especially for the deformity population as well, the results were much more reproducible. And just the demographic, the type of patient was extremely complex. And I felt like there was a lot more that from a research perspective, being an academic surgeon, 
there was a lot more work I could do to optimize patient selection, optimize treatment, and improve the care of those patients through through a lot of academic work. And I, I didn't feel maybe the same was true so much on the degenerative side. And of course, the tumor population is extremely rewarding as well. So I would say that's sort of how I evolved in, into that specialty. How come on a spinal deformity surgery? What is the epidemiology? Is Are you treating mostly young adults, the elderly? Is the surgeries increasing in the elderly, as we've seen in other spine surgeries? That's right. I mean, in the United States, we have an aging population. We're going to be 80 million people over 65 by 2050. And there's about a 60% prevalence of curves over 10 degrees. That doesn't mean all of those patients need surgery by any means, but it means they're being processed and they're being evaluated. You know, the story I like to tell is, you know, I'm 54 years old going on 55. And when I was a child, when I would go to the department stores, I would look around and there were a lot of, and this was in the 60s and early 70s, a lot of people, older people that were in wheelchairs that were just kind of chronically disabled. But but now with improved care for cardiovascular care, improved arthroplasty, uh, improved care even for early stage dementia, other musculoskeletal advancements, cancer even, those patients are living long, long lives. And and they have an expectation of greater function in older age. So the patient that maybe, you know, Dr. Bradford, my mentor, didn't see so much, he treated a lot of patients kind of in 40s and 50s. We're seeing more and more patients that are 65, 70, even 80 years old with adult spinal deformity who are otherwise functional. I mean, just today I had a clinic filled with them. I mean, I saw three or four patients in their 80s with significant curves who want treatment, who had maximized non-operative care. And we're not content to have an abnormal posture and have pain. And they were seeking, seeking an answer through possibly surgical treatment. Nowadays, the techniques have evolved, I think, so that, that we can potentially offer that more safely. Mm-hmm. Let's, first of all, for our audience who may not know what spinal deformity is, can you define what spinal deformity surgery, what, what conditions are we talking about? Sure. So I think probably much of the audience may be familiar with adolescent scoliosis. It's called adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. And it has a somewhat of a genetic basis. Some of it's unexplained, but probably has to do with some abnormal growth regulation of the spine, the anterior part of the spine and the posterior part of the spine. And as those patients get older, many of those patients are not treated surgically when they're younger. And so some proportion of the patients we see are what we call adult idiopathic scoliosis patients. They're patients that had scoliosis growing up. Everyone's pretty much familiar with the adolescent scoliosis, but they didn't get treatment. And so some proportion, actually a a smaller proportion than you would think, are just the typical sort of scoliosis patient that that your audience might think about. But a much higher number of them are actually patients who develop what we call degenerative scoliosis. And this scoliosis is related to arthritis. And just like growth can affect different parts of the spine at different different rates, causing a curvature, when the spine degenerates, it can lead to ligamentous laxity. This degeneration can be asymmetric. And the spine under loading, if you think about it sort of as a, as a structure, when a structure starts to, if you think about a bridge or something like that, that's developing some, when we have a lot of aging infrastructure in the United States, you think about a bridge that's, that starts to age and things start to loosen. The first thing the bridge does is start to buckle. And that's exactly what's going on with the spine. So if an engineer would say the adult elderly degenerative scoliosis patient is undergoing buckling phenomenon, under gravity with ligamentous loosening, deformity of the bones, 
disc and joint loosening. So that's the other type of patient we see. And then furthermore, I think as spine surgeons, and I, I definitely include myself in this, having produced probably more spinal deformity than most, we also produce deformity as surgeons. So we operate on someone, they do well for a while, and then they develop what's called an iatrogenic deformity, meaning caused by medical treatment or surgery, flat backs, for example, next segment disease, degeneration above and below fusions, instability after decompressions. So that's that's really the other the other segment. And then increasingly, I would say in the cervical spine as well, long segment constructs leading to distal junctional deformities. So we're treating more cervical thoracic deformity as well. And that's dramatically increasing, much more so than the degenerate population. So what kind of symptoms do patients with spinal deformity have and how does it affect their quality of life? And what are some of the non-operative treatments? The, the most common indication for which patients would seek treatment with adult spinal deformity is pain. So they would come in with uh, low back pain, just like a typical patient with arthritis, for example. But a thorough workup will, will reveal that they represent a special subset of this population with spinal curvature, kyphosis, loss of lordosis, for example. They can also present in other ways, though. They can present with postural issues, leaning forward, leaning to the side, what the surgeons call sagittal or coronal imbalance, global imbalance. They can present with dissatisfaction with appearance, where they just don't like their way their shoulder, one shoulder's up or down, or their hip is up or down. And then finally, they can present with uh, abnormalities of function. They just are not walking as well or or functioning as well. And there is a direct link between radiographic deformity or, or scoliosis, especially in the satchel plane, the anterior posterior plane, so to speak, lateral plane, I should say, and disability scores. Although our more current research indicates that linkage is not as strong as we once thought, especially after surgery, there's a definite link between deformity and health related quality of life. The correlation values are weak to, to moderate. Mm-hmm. So what are the indications for surgery? Well, surgery is reserved for patients that have failed non-operative treatment. So typically, they have to have a moderate to severe level of disability, Mm -hmm. meaning compromise of function from pain, walking, inability to do activities that they require or enjoy doing. And they've maximized non-operative treatment, which includes physical therapy, yoga, Pilates, core muscle strengthening, injection therapy mental holistic therapies. But if they're still suffering, generally spinal deformity surgery can result in anywhere from a 25 to 75% improvement, depending on what symptom you're looking at. You're looking at pain, that's usually around 50 to 60%. Appearance can be a bit more, maybe 50 to 70%. Function depends upon what function you're looking at, but somewhere between 30 to to 60, 70%. And that means that, that we're really helping a pretty significant portion of this population. One interesting thing is we, we try to look at dissatisfaction with care as part of our large research registry and maybe five years ago, and there weren't enough dissatisfied patients to have enough power to actually do that study. So that told us, and we know this population, and believe me, we're not making them perfect. <laughs> we're, we're improving them. They're not perfect. But what it's telling us is even though they're not perfect and maybe they're only 30, 50, 70% better, they are satisfied, meaning that we're making an impact on them. And so we wouldn't, they wouldn't say they wouldn't have the same operation again for the same result, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So what about the overall complication rates compared to you know, non-deformity surgeries? 
The complication rates are higher for sure. Some of it is due just due to the invasiveness of the procedure. I mean, these are not one and two level fusions. These are fusions that at least extend usually over four to six levels, often seven to 12, meaning we're, we're terminating at the T10 level or the T9 level. And then many times 13 or more, meaning we're going all the way up the spine to the upper back, T3, T4. Some of it depends on what type of deformity surgery it is. So if it's something that involves a major bone cut called an osteotomy or a three-column osteotomy, the complication rates can be up, upwards of 75%. And this is historical data. And this is every site, so I should emphasize that. And this is looking very meticulously at complication rates, meaning prospectively tracking them to try to capture everything from urinary tract infection to a significant neurological deficit or heart attacks, of, so to speak. But the ones that don't involve three-column osteotomies, the, the rates are still fairly high at around 50%. We looked at our rates of complication over time in this large database in which I'm, I'm fortunate to work called the International Spine Study Group and also combined with the European group. These are, because this is such a worldwide health problem, meaning the aging population, adult deformity, we've created these large registry groups really around the world to look at this. And what we've seen is that we've gotten a lot better with time. So although the complication rates are high, they're decreasing. The rod fracture rate for these cases, for example, used to be in a three-column osteotomy uh, over 20%. And now the rate is less than 10%. Proximal junctional failure, meaning failing at the top of the construct, used to be about 20%. And now with ligament augmentation, vertebroplasty, more concentration on age-specific alignment, we've gotten it down to about 5%. So not perfect, but slowly we're whittling away at this. And this is really, again, as I mentioned at the outset, what attracted me to this specialty, which is there was so much to do from a research standpoint, to optimize care, it was really an opportunity. As you think about it, if, you, if your audience is any kind of young surgeon, I certainly wouldn't look, I, if I were interested in being an academic surgeon, I wouldn't go look at an area that's been super well optimized. The greatest impact you're going to have is in something where you can drive an improvement. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about some of the advances in the surgical techniques and also some of the advances in technology like robotics or navigation, whether they've made the surgery safer? Sure. If you look at the most common complications, they are all related to bone. So there's failure of fusion, there's rod fracture, which is not completely related to bone, but is somewhat related to bone, proximal junctional failure, and, you know, pseudoarthrosis. And all these things are related to bony, uh, some, some aspect of bone biology and bone failure. So we, when I started out, we used two rods per case. That was it. And we were just happy to get those two rods on and be done with the case. And And now we use four, six, seven rods sometimes trying to hold these older patients together. Again, a difference in thinking. When I grew up, the older surgeons used to say, well, if there's a rod fracture, there's always a pseudoarthrosis. Well, it's actually not true. Like, just like anything you research, you end up finding that what you're told or taught often isn't true. What happens is if you have osteoporosis, that osteoporosis also affects your fusion substrate. The fusion bone is also softer, so it transmits more load to the rod, and that's why just getting a solid fusion doesn't work. So what can you do? Well, you can add more metal, which is what we've been doing. You can augment bone through things like forteo or or cement, and you can also work on new metals that don't break. And so that we leave that for our industry partners, but they're looking at things like molybdenum, rhenium, different cobalt chrome alloys, carbon fiber, you know, things like this to try to to prevent uh, rod fracture. And then 
Finally, a bony failure at the top. So we've uh, developed and published a ligament augmentation. Uh, we're trying to right now go through an FDA approval process, maybe with one of the companies to try to make this something we can teach and then hopefully make it something that the surgeons can code for. We're doing all these extra things right now. We're using BMP, we're using extra rods, we're using ligament augmentation, and the hospitals aren't being paid for it. The surgeons aren't being paid. So this is just part of the economy kind of around advancement. But, you know, you don't have to just develop a technique. You also have to figure out a way to incorporate it into the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to get into the cost effectiveness a little bit later. Now let's talk about artificial intelligence. You are the leader in the use of artificial intelligence in spinal deformity surgery. I think it's a fair statement to, to make. First of all, what is AI? And can you maybe also describe the different types of AI approaches? Sure. In very basic terms, artificial intelligence is the use of computers to do tasks that require, uh, used to require only human intelligence. So it's essentially doing things that require, for computers doing things that require intelligence. It's the most basic way to think about it. It takes surgical intelligence, or human intelligence, for example, to quote a patient the risk of, risk of surgery. You have to look at the literature. You have to look at your own experience. So the computers may also be able to do this in, in the future. It takes some component of human intelligence to decide what angle of the construct to make and how to realign someone. And in the future, computers may, able to, may be able to take data and decide or offer, offer solutions, not, not take the decision-making entirely away from the surgeon, but offer the, the computer intelligence, the artificial intelligence input on it, for example. Very similar to like when you fly. When you get on an airplane, now, and you look in the cockpit and there's a 60-year-old pilot, oh, we're all like, oh, perfect. There's a very experienced pilot there, right? <laughs> if you look on there and there's a 23-year-old pilot and you're flying to France or something, you're thinking, geez, <laughs> I hope that pilot has enough experience, right? But what we don't know is that there's so many automated AI-based systems that predict wind shear, that predict when the, when the plane is tilting or when it's going to tilt or when it's going to have a mechanical failure. AI runs through the whole mechanical process of the plane when it lands and, and, and tries to predict what failure is going to happen before it happens. So th these are areas where I think the use of computer intelligence, which is very similar to human intelligence, is going to have an impact. One of the areas that's most interesting is machine learning. Machine learning is essentially when a computer is given a data set and can learn from that data set how to do a particular task. The most famous application of this is in chess. They taught a, a computer how to play chess. And initially, they were teaching the computer and downloading like all the moves from all the greatest chess champions into the, into the computer. And sure enough, that computer was slowly able to beat like the, the best available champion. But when they, they took a different approach, and this was Google and uh, Stockfish 8, I think now there's even a new champion. So now the computers just play against each other. They've, they've long ago defeated the human champions. And they took a different approach and they said, actually, we're not going to give any history of chess, any of the moves of the great chess masters of the computer. We're just going to tell it what the goals are and then give it like a large data set and it can play each other. It can play itself and generate more and more data and learn basically by playing itself. And this computer just thrashed, you know, the prior computer in chess. And the same is going to go on. Once we, in surgery, we're going to have to datafy our process. So... We have to figure out how can we datify the patient, we datify the surgery, we datify the environment, the hospital, 
the neuromonitoring, the blood pressure, everything around the care of that patient. And then we turn machine learning loose on the outcomes and the computers can identify problems before they happen. One of the projects we're working on now at UCSF is, you know, in neuromonitoring, isn't it crazy that we rely on some guy sitting in the room looking at the tracing and saying when you're going to have a problem? Well, if you integrate blood pressure and you integrate all the neuromonitoring tracing and you have computer learning algorithms that can look through the past thousand cases and predict when there was a true positive, you're probably going to show some improvement there. This has been shown many times before. It was the most famous study was published in sepsis in Nature Medicine, where the computers can now, through machine learning and large data sets of sepsis patients, can predict a patient that's going to develop sepsis before they develop it. So essentially, they can be treated before they develop shock. And the same is true for just about everything we're trying to do. We're trying to predict Who's going to have a good outcome before surgery? Who's going to have a complication so we can avoid it? Who's going to have a neurological deficit so we know early enough to do something different? That's where I think machine learning is going to have a real, real impact. Hmm. So you had previously you had mentioned that you the surgery has good outcomes, patients satisfied, and they would like to do the surgery again. What are some of the main problems and challenges that led you to use the AI? I know. There are some benefits, but was there something specific about spinal deformity surgery that really drove you to begin to search and incorporate AI? I think one of the things that we we recognized when we started pooling large data sets was there is a tremendous heterogeneity in risk and benefit. So if you if you look, how does a surgeon operate in clinic? So if you think of yourself, I'm going to quote you a risk of a procedure. Well, what is a good surgeon? Well, if you're a good academic surgeon or any surgeon, you go to the literature, you pull out an average value from a paper, and you say, well, the ISSG or Ames or, you know, somebody said, Lanky, somebody said, this is the risk, this was the average risk of a major complication in this series of, you know, 100, 400 patients, whatever. But actually, people aren't average. If you use sophisticated data analysis in large data sets, it doesn't matter whether it's spine surgery, hips, or general surgery, you realize only about 5 to 10% of the patients usually fall around that average. And that's, that was really like a, an unbelievable impetus to me to say, wow, we're really doing something wrong. <laughs> if we're just quoting people, including ourselves, trying to help the patient make a decision, an average value. When really, if we leverage data, we now have predictive analytics using AI and machine learning, that can predict using 100 variables, everything from genetics, age, walking speed, expectation, bone quality, smoking, goals for surgery, how that patient's going to do what their likely postoperative improvement is going to be. You asked before a bit about robotics. Let's say we can control every aspect of it, right? So we can control the prediction. We have really good information, not 100%, but now we're at around 70-80% accuracy in predicting prior surgery, the risk and benefit, even the cost. Okay. And then one of the things that's been in advance recently is custom rods. So now we can design a plan and we can have somebody build a custom rod that actually predicts the patient's alignment. And we can build all that prior to surgery. Again, this is like best, most advanced care. But then as the surgeon puts the screws in, even if the surgeon uses navigation, some screws might be too deep, some screws might be too angled. So it's really like robotics, bringing robotics in then 
just eliminates variability in the process. It, it, it's called human systems engineering. It's basically what, what are the weaknesses of humans and how can machines improve on that? So you've got a great plan based in AI. You've got a custom rod, but then you put your screws in all kind of weird, even though they're in the right place. They're angled. They're too deep. They're too shallow. There's another source of possible error. And that's where I think robotics will be very helpful to try to eliminate that sort of intraoperative error. The computer science language for that is noise. There's occasional noise, meaning that on one day you're biased or one day you're, you're doing really well and then the next day you're not operating as well. Think about it. We're in some ways, we're surgical athletes. And if you watch track and field or you watch, you know, some days the athlete's got it and some days the athlete, he's tired or he's just not on. And we all know that from our practice. We put screws in one day, we think we're a genius. The next day we put screws in, <laughs> we're not very good. And I think that's where robotics can come in. It's sort of eliminating that occasional noise from our human performance. You mentioned chess. In the case of chess, the Alpha Zero, the computer that beats all the existing computers, when the world champion started working with that computer, studying the games of Alpha Zero, the world champion, Magnus Carlsen, from 2019 on, started winning, beating his own record and winning a series of tournaments because he learned some new ways of thinking. By working with AI, have you learned something new that you wouldn't have learned otherwise? Yeah, that is such a good example. And I'm so glad you brought that up because really the next few decades are going to be not really the age of AI, but the age of, of humans and AI together, right? To improve care and, and move things forward. And the best example of this in, in our case was when we started moving from correlation analysis to predictive analytics and informatics, we saw very clearly something we didn't expect, which was that if you look between surgeon and site at the risk of major complications, it was only 5 to 10%. We thought, wow, this is going to be so different. And it, and it wasn't. But what made the biggest difference were all patient-specific factors. So and about half of those factors were potentially modifiable. So this was an exact example of what you're saying. Using big data informatics, we eliminated a bias. We were wrong. It was actually not surgeons that were super. At certain levels, pilots are all pretty good. At certain levels, surgeons are all pretty good, although surgeons have huge egos and we think we're the best. But really, at the top levels, we're all pretty similar. And what was driving the variation, what was driving the noise, was actually noise in the patient population. It was their variability. And, and many of those variables were modifiable. So things like bone density optimization, nutrition, depression treatment, preoperative physical therapy and preoperative conditioning to move them just above a certain threshold of daily activity that dramatically changes their postoperative risk and their outcome. Our prehabilitation initiative at UCSF was a direct result of the work that we did in AI and predictive modeling because it totally gave us a result that we were not expecting. That's very interesting. So what does that tell you about, can this type of surgery be done anywhere or should only high volume centers be doing this? In a smaller volume place, if they followed these and used the AI and all that, would it be okay for smaller centers to do this type of surgery? I think it really depends on the experience of the surgeon. 
I do believe that I do believe in the premise of what you're saying, which is for the most complicated things, the most complicated cardiac procedures, the most complicated spine surgery, spine deformity, spine tumor, it is going to be dependent on the surgeon and his experience. We only learn through 10,000 hours of high volume work. I do think that that represents a small subset of the care of the adult deformity patient. If we use informatics and we use navigation and we use robotics as the ultimate leveling device, sort of the ultimate information as the ultimate enabling technology, that an individual surgeon out in a community practice can benefit from this massive amount of collective experience. He can run his case through a database of 5,000 adult deformity patients, see how they were treated, see what led to the best result, what were the complication rates, and maybe the techniques involved are something with which he and his team, not just him, but he and his, and his, his pathway, his process, his cloud around him feel comfortable. And maybe it's something where they think, gosh, after seeing how these patients were treated using the power of data, maybe it's not something I feel comfortable with. Or maybe it's something I feel comfortable with, but only if I have an enabling technology like navigation or robotics. How satisfying has this been a path for you, a career path for you? It's funny. I, I always thought I was going to be a skull base surgeon, and I spent a lot of time in the in the skull base lab. I realized that personally, I it just working under the microscope for hours and hours just wasn't wasn't a fit for me. I like to be mobile. I like to do things that are a bit more mechanical. And so for me, uh, as a career path, it's been really interesting. And I, I don't second guess my decision to do spine surgery, especially spinal deformity and spine tumor. Uh, there's so many opportunities there. I would say it's been, it's been really interesting. And, you know, as, as you know, as a neurosurgeon, we go back and forth with our cranial colleagues all the time, you know, but spine surgery, there's a lot that the cranial surgeons can learn from the spine surgeons research-wise. AI is not penetrating so much into cranial surgery right now. It's penetrating into cranial radiology and stroke care, but it's not penetrating so much in decision-making in cranial surgery. And also the outcome science associated with spine surgery were held to a much higher standard. I mean, ask your aneurysm surgeon how their patient's doing one year post-op. No idea. I mean, have you ever seen that study? I mean, I, I, I'm not aware of it. So there's a lot they can learn from how we analyze data, how we track patients, how we assess functional outcomes. And then for sure, a lot they can learn from us in cost effectiveness research, which is the other area that I know you and I are both really interested in, but it's really not touched upon so much in other aspects of neurosurgical care. So that's how I got involved in it. It just, it just suited my personality more. And I thought there was a lot of opportunity for optimization. I'm not sure. And in fact, I would say I'm convinced that if I'd gone into brain tumor surgery or I'd gone into aneurysm surgery, I think I would have just been like an ordinary surgeon. I don't think you'd ever know my name or I just don't think I would have had a real impact in that area. Can you say one word about a cost effectiveness of spinal deformity surgery? And also, what do you envision the next decade of spinal deformity surgery to look like? Yeah, this is a big topic. I'll try to be concise. A few years ago, Dave Polly, who was president of the SRS, realized that Spine surgery and expensive musculoskeletal care was going to hit a wall because we, we have an aging population, our healthcare budget's close to $6 trillion and will be even more in the coming years. And the U.S. GDP is not growing very quickly. 
and we're going to hit a wall in paying for these procedures. So first thing we did was develop stratification tools to try to stratify risk and benefit. These are sort of indices and scores like frailty. And then we realized we would take a big data approach that's going to be better. And the basic idea, Max, is you have a certain amount of money to spend. Now, the U.S. is pretending that's not going to be the case, <laughs> but, but in the future, it's it for sure. In Spain, U.K., all around the world, it, they've already hit the wall. And they have a certain amount of money to spend on adult spine care. And you're going to have to predict and direct that money to patients that are going to benefit the most they're going to drain the system the least. And that's really a twofold equation because the patients that are going to benefit the most are also the ones that often have high complication rates. It's not the young patient that has a coronal deformity and no pain. That patient's like a plastic surgery patient many times. I'm not talking about adolescents. I'm talking about, you know, 20, 30-year-old, 40-year-old patients who stop growing. But health economies are going to have to decide at a, at a value judgment level where they want to spend their money on population-based health for this for spine. And we think predictive analytics that can predict cost, can predict risk, can predict outcome, these algorithms are going to help them to do that to try to preserve it so that we can still help patients, not everyone, but we can still help patients that we think are really going to be helped that are not going to drain the system really unfairly or unnecessarily when there's a limited amount of money. It's not an infinite pool of money in, in most places. And what do you think the future next decade or two decades is going to look like? Is surgery, the surgeon will be sitting in the corner reading a newspaper and robots are doing the surgery or? <laughs> not, not completely, but there's not, <laughs> there's certainly something to be said for that, especially as I get older, I wouldn't mind the surgeons doing, or the computer, the computers and robots doing some aspects of the surgery for me. But essentially, I think the biggest move is going to be a datafication process. I don't even know if that's a word, but essentially where Everything we do will be datafied. For example, the cases will be recorded. The operating rooms will be recorded to look at turnover times and efficiencies and cleaning times and handoffs. Inventory will be tracked. Everything essentially will be datafied from the surgeon's movements to the conversations with patients using semantic uh, analysis on their what they're relating in terms of their, their disease and how it's affecting them to the post-operative care. It's going to be datafied. It's going to be automated. It's going to be predicted and hopefully will work toward giving surgeons more time to spend with patients doing the humanistic aspect of care and less time focused on aspects of medical record keeping and aspects of decision making that potentially can be done better by computers or at least informed better by computers. So I would summarize it by saying increased datafication and information as an, an enabling technology and genetics, finding out aspects of information that we're missing. One we know right now we're missing is genetic information and epigenetic information. And we're in the process now trying to put that into our data sets. If you had a magic wand, what is missing in research that you'd like to answer? If you had a magic wand and then lots of money, what kind of research question, a burning question would you answer with, with that? This always reminds me of the Donald Rumsfeld quote, which is the unknown unknowns. So if I had a magic wand in big data, I would love to know a couple secret unknown unknowns. So making them known. One known unknown I know of is genetic information related to aging and epigenetic information and bone biology and tissue biology. 
And if I can wave a magic wand, I would have a tissue database of bone, DNA, epigenetic information, and muscle all around the world. And I would be able to analyze that to take my accuracy and prediction from 60, 70, 80%, hopefully up to 95% in the future. So I would say it's really more around now genetic information. Wow, that is fascinating. Well, Dr. Ames, thank you very much for it's been real privilege to speak with you on on this topic. I want to thank you for your insights and we've learned so much. I know it was about 35 minutes or so, but we've learned so much about how to make spinal deformity uh, safer, the role of AI and what the future looks like. We appreciate taking the time to speak with us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Max. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about our work. It was a real joy to be with you today, and I wish you the best of luck in the future with this great work and the podcast you're doing. You bet. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Optimal Neurospine Podcast with Dr. Max Boachi. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you share it with others. Leave us positive reviews on social media or leave a rating and review on iTunes. Check out our website, maxwellboachi.com slash podcasts for show transcripts and other information. Join us next time for another edition of Optimal Neurospine Show. Spine Show.